You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents. Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Welcome to another weekly edition of Monster Talk. Continuing on our spooky October theme, these next two episodes deal with the mysterious Australian case of Fisher's Ghost. It's a tale of murder, intrigue, ghosts, and assimilation of all that material into an identity of a town. In part one, we'll be looking at the historical tale of Frederick Fisher of Campbellton, who disappeared under mysterious circumstances in 1826. In part two, we'll be looking at the evidence for the alleged ghost and discuss how the community has processed this mystery over nearly two centuries in a surprisingly upbeat way. This time around, it's Karen's research we'll be looking at, and I wanted to throw in a reminder that her collection of short stories, which includes one inspired by this very tale, is now available on Amazon.com, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Monster Dog. Ooh, cool. Spooky October. My God. Outside, the leaves are blowing and there's crows standing in my front yard staring at me. Yeah, I've got pumpkins everywhere and uh, pumpkin spice lattes. and Actually, I don't like those very much, so (laughs) none of those. (laughs) Do you know those of – I think they only came around in like 2003 and I was just discussing with uh, Kathleen – uh, my wife for new listeners mm-hmm. the um the the fact that the, that seems like an ancient tradition but you know that's really not quite 20 years old and it's like there's, there's pumpkin some spi- people who aren't ancient yeah well it's like there's pumpkin spice everything and if you grew up in that it's just gonna seem like that was yeah. always a thing you know 
Well, like the internet, right? Like the internet, exactly. <laughs> like it was always there. Well, I used to like, I don't know if you remember these, but at Starbucks and other places, don't mean this to be an ad for that company, but they used to have a gingerbread spice mm. uh, drink and that was really nice. I used to enjoy that. But uh, I mean, you can still get gingerbread syrup everywhere too. But yeah, it's certainly a beautiful time of year here and uh, the, the absolute opposite in uh, Australia and in the, uh, the Southern Hemisphere getting ready for some of it. it is, it's always struck me as odd, the sort of inverted holiday, you know, imagery. Think of that uh, Tim Minchin mm-hmm. song talking about, you know, Christmas time being a time for... Right a wine <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, that was absolutely a time for salads, not turkey. I don't think I uh, really... I mean, I, I don't eat meat as it is, but um, yeah, turkey wasn't a thing um, for Christmas dinner when I was growing up. And uh, I mean, people still celebrate Halloween. And something that's interesting to me is that I think it's on the increase. Because years ago, in Australia anyway, growing up, oh, it's a horrible American thing and don't Americanize Australia. You had those kinds of attitudes. But I really think that Halloween's becoming more popular. I mean, obviously, we've said before, what, like every day is Halloween for us, you know. So October is the one month a year when everybody acts like us, right? So <laughs> That's right. The, the one month that we fit in. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter what the season is or what part of the world that you're in. A lot of people love Halloween, and certainly we're celebrating it this month, all month. Well, and I'm excited, too, because we've talked about seasons, and we've talked about spice, and now we're going to talk about a ghost. We're going to be talking about the legend of Fisher's ghost. Okay. So some background to this story. We have discussed this a little bit before on an episode of Monster Talk Live, and uh, also with the episode that we did recently with the folklorist Professor John Gutowski, we were talking about strange festivals or proto-festivals. And he uh, enlightened us about the Beast of Busco in Indiana back in 1950. And at the time, I'd mentioned that there was another festival around that time in Australia, which is very early uh, for, for anything to be going on there because usually things start in, in the States and it can take a little while to, uh, to reach Australia. But uh, anyway... Uh, there was a festival that started around that time and it was called the Festival of Fisher's Ghost. And this was in Campbelltown in New South Wales. And the tradition started when about 1,500 people gathered at night hoping to catch a glimpse of Fisher's Ghost. So it makes me think of these ghost riots that we're talking about of late. This isn't so much a riot, just a lot of people, especially for, uh, for Campbelltown back in 1956, a lot of people... A ghost gathering, anyway, we could call yeah, right. it. Right. I think we should clarify because Karen and I have been discussing this offline. But the in the 19th century, in British newspapers, they described these large public gatherings of people looking for ghosts as ghost riots. They're not not meaning necessarily people were up to riotous no good, but it was just a large gathering of people waiting. It's very similar to things we've seen with UFO flaps, where people converge looking to see repeat sightings. And uh, the legend, oh my gosh, it's been a long time since we talked about this, but the the gateway to hell in the little town of Stull, Kansas. But they had a big problem with people yeah. showing up because the legend was that the gates to hell opened at midnight on Halloween and all these teenagers would show up in the in, in, in mass uh, and create havoc in the graveyard. Mm-hmm. So uh, there certainly was a riotous yeah, but quality to that. Absolutely. And I think that that's going to be mentioned, isn't it, in, in the episode that we with Michelle Hanks about that yeah that, that, that'll be in last week's episode if you haven't listened to it yet what well, time is weird 
So this legend, it dates back to the 19th century and Fisher's ghost is known as Australia's most famous ghost or even Australia's first ghost. And I think that that's yeah, probably accurate. Uh, so it, this is an interesting story and it's really been kept alive over the years through the festival and through modern pop culture and retelling. See, when I first heard about this story, it was from my father and he used to tell me the story all the time after that. I mean, as dads do. And uh, so I really grew up with the story and it's, it's really important, I think, to Australian folklore and history. It goes back to the time of early settlement of white people and the Australia, the country's uh, colonial past and talks about the experiences of convicts. So it's got a lot of Australian history to it and uh, it's an interesting one. So this is a legend of a fellow named Frederick George James Fisher and he was born in August 1792 in London, England. And so as the story goes, he was a shopkeeper until around 1815 when he was caught forging banknotes or maybe he was just in possession of forged banknotes and maybe he was using them. But somehow he got caught and charged and then sentenced to 14 years transportation to Australia. So for those who aren't familiar with the term, transportation was the forced migration of prisoners, better known as convicts. And Fisher had an interesting past. He could read and write and literate convicts were rare. So he was given a position as a clerk, which was very fortunate for him because other convicts were forced to do backbreaking labour on farms or building roads and bridges, and they were really terribly mistreated with cruel punishments, usually just for having committed petty crimes. So there's a stereotype in Australia that uh, most convicts were sent to Australia because they stole a loaf of bread. That's the one that you'll often hear, but usually very petty crimes and people would just be locked up and then sent to Australia. I mean, just the way that they were treated and the, the long journey to Australia, a lot of people died and uh, oh, just really terrible conditions and uh, just a very sorry part of Australia's history. By about 1822, Fisher had served half of his sentence. So he applied for what was called a ticket of leave. So this was a kind of conditional parole and it was granted. So he started a new life and he was given a small parcel of land in Campbelltown, which is where our story takes place. And he uh, set up a farm and he acquired some horses and cattle and sheep. And he had a pretty good life until the day that he just mysteriously disappeared. So this was in 1826, sometime in June. So he, he just disappeared off the face of the earth and everyone was just very surprised until his friend and neighbour came forward. His name was William George Worrell and he was also an ex-convict and he revealed that Fisher had returned home to his native England because apparently he'd been in trouble with the police again, something to do with forgery and he feared having his parole revoked. So he left but before he departed He'd given Worrell his power of attorney over his property and his general affairs. Well, that's convenient. Very convenient. Very, very <laughs> kind of him. So soon thereafter, Worrell claims that Fisher had written to him, advising him that he wasn't intending to return to Australia ever and giving his land to Worrell. What a generous man. And then man. a couple of weeks yep. later, Worrell... <laughs> yeah, yes. So a few weeks later... Worrell sold all of Fisher's belongings. So it's getting a little bit suspicious here, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, now uh, we're not a true crime podcast, but I feel like maybe a crime's been committed. 
Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so then three months later, <laughs> three months later, a farmer by the name of John Farley ran into a local pub and he was really shaken, really freaked out. And he announced to all the patrons in the pub that he'd just seen the ghost of Fred Fisher sitting on the rail of a nearby bridge. So the ghost didn't say anything to John Farley, but he just pointed to a paddock beyond the creek and then he just vanished. Which I have to say, I mean, you know, just as a person who's read a couple of ghost stories um, or in some ghost lore and some ghost Mm -hmm. sightings, there's, I mean, there's many unusual aspects about this story as you, as it unfolds. A quick comment here. I'm replacing a little rambling mini rant I have with something a little bit more thought out. While discussing this case with Karen, I was in the moment surprised that a story about a ghost would include that same ghost being seen on a bridge over moving water. That's because there's extensive folklore around the idea that spirits can't cross running water. See, for example, the many stories about people escaping ghosts by crossing a bridge or fording a river. This sort of thing's very common in folklore and came to mind immediately, but there are also hundreds and hundreds of allegedly haunted bridges. So this has to be chalked up to another one of those cases where you've got conflicting folklore. I'm sure people can quickly come up with reasons why both things could be true. For example, having an exemption if you happen to die on a bridge. It's all fascinating stuff, and even though I don't believe any of it, I can't help but enjoy the experience of crossing a a walking bridge on a dark and brooding October night with the wind blowing and the leaves falling. But for now, back to the chat. So the the townspeople, anyway, they just dismissed Farley's story because it just seemed so far-fetched. And they assumed he was drunk as well because he just left the pub before he came back and told everyone about the ghost. So that was it for a couple of weeks until a couple of school kids were cutting across Fisher's farm on their way home from school one day and they discovered some blood stains on a fence and they also found a, a lock of hair and a tooth. Uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh. Finally, the police decided that they would start an investigation with this new evidence that they had. And they didn't have much success at first. They went looking and combing the farm and the paddock and, and the areas that, uh, that the ghost had pointed to, but they couldn't find anything. So they enlisted an Aboriginal tracker. So we've talked, we've mentioned these Aboriginal trackers before. So they were indigenous people who were skilled in finding missing persons. So they really knew the land very well. And uh, so this tracker in some stories he's called Gilbert. So Gilbert found something really gross that was floating in the creek and he skimmed it off with a stick and he smelt it and then he tasted it as well, which sounds pretty yucky, upon which he declared, white man's fat. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, very sensitive indeed. So the, the tracker kept up the search and ended up leading the cops to uh, the remains of Fisher, very grisly remains of Fisher, who'd been buried in a shallow grave beside a creek called Bowbowing Creek. And the, the strange thing again is that his body was found on Worrell's land. Yeah, they searched the Worrell over and found him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. <laughs> so, so in early 1827, George Worrell was arrested for the crimes of the murder of Fisher and also the theft of his property. He was tried in a criminal court and it only took the jury 15 minutes to find him guilty. So he was sentenced to be hanged and then he was executed just three days later. And when he was on the gallows, he confessed to his crimes. So the ghost was right. 
So I thought what we'd do now, having told the story, is to look at some of the history behind it. If you look up the legend online, there are lots of different versions, different names, and that's usually the hallmark of urban legends, just different uh, you know, different stories being told. Sure, yeah. And some people think, oh, Fred Fisher never existed. However, records show that he did, he did, and sadly that the murder also happened too. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I did some research on a records uh, research site called Trove. And I came across an article in the Sydney Gazette and the New South Wales Advertiser. And this goes back to 1826, uh, October the 7th. And this article announced the suspected murder of Fred Fisher and off offered a reward of £20 for information that might lead to finding his body. So apparently they needed the body to be able to arrest someone. And just a little note here. Uh, that amount of £20 was equal to a year's wages at the time. So that was some incentive for someone to come forward. As it stands, the case, this case remains the best documented legal drama during the colonial era. There's just so much information about it. And records show that Fred Fisher came to Australia, so he was indeed a convict. And he came aboard the schooner Atlas in 1815, along with almost 200 other convicts. And there's a list that you can you can look up as well uh, a list of convicts who were aboard the atlas and there's a note in the margin next to fisher's name saying murdered <laughs> i thought that was an interesting little note yeah and the going through the records about fisher's career in the colony um he really did have a, an interesting uh, career for a convict he was a clerk for the the uh, colonel administrator's office 
and for the Waterloo Flower Company as well. So he had better jobs than most convicts because he was literate too. Yeah. And then digging a bit further, I found out that uh, his family had apparently been booksellers in London, which may explain his literacy skills, which just weren't common back then. As someone who's yeah. not not steeped in Australian history, I, I realize some sure. some portion of the European population of Australia came from mm-hmm. people who had been convicts and transported, and I assume some was not. Right. So, did that automatically form like a class system? Was there sort of like the like the people who came over on their own dime versus the people like who were convicts and got trained? Is it, in other words, did it automatically break down into a social structure? Absolutely. I mean, you've got class systems whenever you've got people who have different backgrounds um, or who are rich or poor. I mean, you're always going to have that structure. I remember talking to someone recently and they said, oh, there's no classism in the United States. It's not like England. <laughs> <laughs> Hold yeah. on. Yes, there is. Of course, there is. So, in those early days, you would have had uh, the indigenous people, and they were very badly mistreated by the new settlers. But then you had people who came over who set up the new settlement, and so they would have been in a position of power and authority. And then they brought convicts in, they had multiple fleets, many people coming through. And so, it wasn't a little later on until immigration was introduced. And uh, I mean, there's a long history with that too. Australia had a uh, white Australia policy, I think probably around the time of the federation in the country through through to maybe the the 1960s. So they were very specific about who they would allow into the country. So they they wouldn't allow people from Asian countries. Um, They preferred people from England and um, various parts of Europe and they, there was a lot of discrimination against people even from uh, kind of uh, southern Europe. So uh, people in from uh, Italy and from Greece and Spain, they were looked down upon. So, I mean, any time that uh, you're going to have different groups of people from different places, you're going to have that discrimination and prejudice and, and that classism as well. I just wanted to check my pre- – like it was just my assumption, you know, and I, I was I just wanted to check and make sure that that was not crazy talk. Yeah, but no, cl- yeah. class, yeah. Uh, race, race, ethnicity, all these things, mm-hmm. it's pretty normal the world around for people to, you know, discriminate and, you know, set up structures to protect yes. themselves. And But, but even in our ghost stories <laughs> – yeah. yeah, even in the ghost story. But what I think is interesting about uh, Fisher is that he did have literacy skills, and yet his brother was also a convict in Sydney, and he wasn't literate. So I'm not sure exactly why. Because he didn't have the right stuff, Karen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very nice. <laughs> so my point here is that Fisher, in the job that he was in, he was able to make a lot of contacts. Yeah. And that really helped him when he was granted parole. So uh, I'm sure, yeah, you would have had that uh, structure that we're, we're talking about between um, the convicts and then people who were ex-convicts and then people who'd never been convicts and then people who immigrated. So, yeah, lots of different crisscrossing privileges there with, uh, with, with some groups. Do we have any records about uh, George Worrell? Was he also a former convict or was he something else? He was he was an ex-convict as well. Um, I, I can't remember. Some time ago, I had read about his uh, his background, and I can't remember exactly what he did before or what he did to land him uh, in Australia. 
to, to get him sent to Australia. But uh, he was an ex-convict as well. And we'll be getting into that a little bit more as well. So Fisher did pretty well for himself at this point. Uh, he owned several farms and he had some livestock and he also engaged in speculative building. So this was the Wild West of Australia, really. Um, so it was no wonder that he became a target for someone as a wealthy ex-convict. Mm. So he owned quite a bit of land, but he didn't own his own house. So he was actually lodging with none other than George Worrell. Ah. And Worrell was renting the house himself. Yeah, he was just subleasing these rooms out to a number of boarders, most of whom were ex-convicts. So these included Fisher and Fisher's convicts. So, yes, at this point, he'd actually had convicts assigned to himself after having been one himself. So so he is himself in sort of a, a socially vulnerable position as a person on parole, but he's also managed to accumulate wealth, but he's only hanging out with... <laughs> ex-convicts so he's kind of in a perilous spot yeah absolutely absolutely regarding fisher's death so worrell apparently did confess on on the scaffold but he instead claimed that he accidentally shot fisher in the wheat crop uh and that he thought fisher was a horse so i don't know why you would shoot at a horse in the field but that was his claim anyway well if it had any kind of broken leg that's just you know <laughs> that's the state of medicine <laughs> Another theory is that Fisher was attacked by several of his roommates, including Worrell, who'd murdered him for his land and his possessions. So I came across another reference going back to 1912, so that that's closer to the time of the incidents. And this was in the Sun newspaper, and it claimed that on the night that he died, Fisher was in a public house, a pub, and some unnamed men turned up looking for him, which sounds very dodgy, but they were looking for him. They wanted to get some money from him to buy liquor. Uh, but Fisher was never seen alive again after that. So they don't mention who those men were. But you could safely assume that Worrell was involved somehow because he had the most to gain from Fisher's death. Yeah. And he was the one to claim that Fisher had departed the colony to return to England. And there are two stories as to or two different versions as to why Fisher allegedly left. One is that he'd been accused of forgery again and that he feared reprisal. And it seems like there is some evidence to support that. Uh, there's also another story that he got into trouble over a bad business deal. So he'd had an argument with his builder and he'd pulled a knife on the guy. So he got arrested and uh, got into trouble for that. But he just received a light prison sentence. And that's apparently why he gave over his power of attorney to Worrell during that time so that he could protect his possessions. Of course, it didn't work out that way. But there were some holes in Worrell's story. For example, Fisher wouldn't have left the country because he probably would have been arrested immediately upon arrival in England. So this is further to what you were saying about him being in a precarious situation. Mm -hmm. These tickets of leave were conditional, so he hadn't served his full sentence it didn't expire until 1829. So if he'd fled the country, it would have made him an escaped convict. So he wasn't about to do that. And apparently Fisher's brother, Henry, had no idea about this sudden move. Uh, a lot of people said, too, that um, Fisher was the kind of guy that just wouldn't have given anything to anyone. He, he was 
always on the lookout to make money. So he just wouldn't have disappeared, not really telling anyone about it, not telling his brother about it and just leaving uh, his possessions to his neighbour. That was just out of character for him. So there's also the point that the trip to and from the colony took many months. So in the early days, the uh, the boat trip to Australia would take about six to nine months, maybe in the 18th century. Yeah. And around this time, it would take a would take about three months. So that didn't really leave enough time for Fisher to get back to England and then to send a letter all the way back to Worrell. So everything's just looking very suspicious here. It is. Yeah. So in this article going back to 1912, the Sun newspaper also reports that Worrell never produced this alleged letter. So he didn't have the evidence. But later on, he came up with a letter regarding the sale of a horse. So presumably not the one that he said he shot. Shot at. (laughs) But the, yeah. Although the signature was declared to be a forgery. So I thought that that was rather ironic that this was Fisher's crime and and yet here's Worrell being accused of the same thing. Mm Mm-hmm. But it seems that when he was appointed power of attorney, Worrell had assumed that all of Fisher's property would just automatically belong to him. So when he found out that this wasn't correct, he murdered Fisher to collect on his property and his cash and livestock and all the land that he had. So, yeah, all of those parts of the story are, are true. And when Fisher was murdered, he was only 34 years of age. So he's pretty young by our standards. Yeah. And he was uh, buried buried in the nearby church, St. Peter's Anglican Church Cemetery in Campbelltown. And he had various relatives, both in Australia and England, who spent many years trying to inherit his money and his properties because he really had a lot to his name, but without any success. So there's also some evidence, uh, Fisher was unmarried, but there is some evidence to suggest that he had some children back in England, but no one got anything from his estate and all the land was abandoned until, I guess, the government claimed it at some point, and uh, it would be worth a hell of a lot of money nowadays, that's for sure. Okay, that ends the first half of our coverage of Fisher's Ghost. I did want to say that when I think about ghost stories that involve murder, two stories always come to mind. One is a British story that took place just a year after this one. It's called The Red Barn Murder, and we'll probably cover it in a future episode because it's a humdinger of a story of intrigue, crime, romance, betrayal, and the supernatural. And the other story is from America, and it's called The Greenbrier Ghost. This one uh, took place in 1897, and internet folklore would have you believe that the case was solved by a ghost. Again, it's too long of a story to summarize here, but we will hopefully dive into that one and the other in future episodes. For now, this ends this episode, but tune in next week to find out the rest of the story of Fisher's Ghost. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard part one of our two-part coverage of the Australian legend of Fisher's Ghost. Stay tuned, and next week we'll conclude that story on Halloween. Karen Stolzner's new book, Fisher's Ghost and Other Stories is out now, just in time for Halloween. From Monster Talk's co-host comes this anthology of supernatural short fiction. The characters within these pages include lovelorn ghosts, restless spirits, deceptive demons, and deeply flawed humans. Their tales all told with a twist. These unsettling stories are guaranteed to give you nightmares. 
Fisher's Ghost and Other Stories is available for ebook and in paperback from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online booksellers. Hi, Monster Talk listeners. I am Laura Krantz. I've been on this show a few times to talk about my podcast, Wild Thing, and now I'm here to talk to you about my book. It's called The Search for Sasquatch. So a little bit of background for those of you who don't know me. I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist for about 15 years now, and for a good chunk of that, I worked at National Public Radio in Washington, D.C. and L.A. And while I was living in D.C., I was reading the Washington Post, and there was this article about a guy named Grover Krantz, same last name. And it talked about how he'd been a tenured professor of anthropology at Washington State University, how he had waded into the big debates about human evolution, and how he was probably most well-known for driving around the Pacific Northwest with a spotlight and a rifle searching for Sasquatch. At that point, I'd only thought of Bigfoot as a big myth, but it turns out Grover was considered the country's preeminent academic expert on Bigfoot. And I thought, okay, if a bona fide scientist thought it might be real, maybe there's more to this than I thought. Grover was very much a man of science, but he was also a man of Bigfoot. And I wondered if it was possible to be both of those things. So with that in mind, I decided to apply my journalism skills to the exploration of Bigfoot. I would walk in Grover's footsteps <clears throat> and see what we knew, what the science was, what the facts were, what we had discovered. Where would Bigfoot fit in the evolutionary tree if he existed? All of this was the foundation for the first season of my podcast, Wild Thing. What do we know about Bigfoot? And even if it's not real, why do we want to believe? I talked to scientists and squatchers. I heard from Native Americans about stories that had been passed down for generations. Now, the podcast was never aimed at kids. There's a little bit of swearing. So I was incredibly surprised when I started to get letters from parents who were listening with their kids and teachers who were using elements of the podcast in their classroom to talk about evolution, DNA analysis, the scientific method. And what I realized is this idea was ripe for a nonfiction kids book. So that's how the search for Sasquatch came to be. It's a way to talk about the scientific method and evidence and science ideas, but also let kids explore fun and interesting ideas and the mystery of Bigfoot, which I think appeals to a lot of us. The book is available through Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and at a lot of independent booksellers. And if you can't find it at your independent bookstore, please feel free to ask them to carry it. Also, if you enjoy the melodious sounds of my voice, it's available as an audiobook, and I'm the narrator. If you want more information, go to wildthingpodcast.com, and there's a lot more details there about the book and where to find it. Thanks so much to Blake and Karen for having me on Monster Talk so many times to talk about my various projects, and keep listening to the show. It's a good one. Thank you. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as The Projection Booth, Small Things Often, and Movie Therapy. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Monster Talk's theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thank you for pouring this show into your ears like warm maple syrup for the pancake of your mind. I better not push that metaphor any further or it's going to break fast.
This has been a Monster House presentation.